0: Welcome everybody to today's episode of Financial Fofu. We have Samir Banga from Banga Legal with us today. Welcome, Samir.
1: Hi guys. Hi Sarah. Hi Trudy. How's everyone?
0: Fantastic for uh, whatever day this is. It's Monday, I think. <laughs> it's a bit like that. um today we are talking about contracts in business um and samir and i refer a bit of business back and forth and this topic became really pertinent after um something that crossed my desk which then crossed Samir's desk about a potential customer that had bought something that he shouldn't have and the contracts were just all over the place and we thought it was a really great topic to to discuss moving forward about all the things you need to consider in business um to do business well and to protect yourself um for loss of income or loss of capital or just potential um negligence or other things that get tried to be what's the legal term put on you <laughs> um
1: lawsuits, but I guess one of the biggest things yeah. I want to say is be proactive. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Trudes, over to you. You've probably got the first question on this topic, I would think.
2: Um, well, I guess it really is around what: why do we have contracts or why do we need things documented um, in our business?
1: That is a, I'm going to say it's a simple question generally, because Thing, contracts are actually there for when things go wrong. Why? Mm-hmm. If you have a gentleman's agreement, or a, I don't know what the right term is on the other side, is there one for a women's agreement? There must be. No,
0: somewhere. I think it's uh, <laughs> gender neutral. <laughs> I've got a handshake agreement. Handshake, agreement, a handshake there agreement. There we go. Agreement,
1: that's all well in principle, and that could get you through your business transaction without an issue. And a lot of the time, it probably will. But what happens when stuff goes wrong? That's where a contract mm. becomes important. It's no different to any other layer, area of law mm. such as a family law dispute because when you agree, it doesn't matter what the contract says or what the orders say because you agree to vary it. And a contract yeah. no different. You might usually pay 10% deposit, but one day you're, the other side might call you and go, look, I need 20% on this one. You go, sure, why not? Here's 20%. We've been working together for a while. There you go. But if that person says no, what's written in the contract? Does it say 10 Does it say 15 both parties will then refer to that contract. So a contract basically details the ins and outs of what the business is meant to do or that transaction, depending on if it's a sales contract, is it the constitution, which isn't a contract, but it's still a legal document, whether it's a contract with your employees, for example. If someone says no, you should have paid 12% super, but the contract says no, we're paying you 10.5. You may decide to pay a little bit more if you want to, but you're not obliged to. So really if we look at it and boil down to it, a contract is there for when things go wrong because you can refer to that as opposed to when things go right because contracts yeah. can be varied at any stage yeah. by both parties being in agreement.
0: Yes, yeah, it's and an
2: interesting thing I do often concept. say to clients that are just starting out to set up a business or they're just going into partnership with someone that, you know, I'm going to be devil's advocate One day something may go wrong and one day maybe you're not the best of friends or even though you're family, maybe something falls apart. And if you don't have it documented what the plan is going to be at that point in time, then it's going to make things a whole lot worse than if you agree now while you're friends and it's happy days and everything's
0: working well. I'm seeing it currently with a client that is in a unit trust and he pretty much runs the whole business and the business partner does nothing but gets profit share. And he now wants to change the direction of some of his decisions and spend some money to make some more money. And she, like they're saying no. And he's like, but, and then they had an agreement, but they didn't vary the partnership agreement, which is what I told him to do. And as a result, He's now stuck for six months. He's going to be behind until he buys her out, which was ultimately part of their plan. But because he didn't vary the partnership agreement, he's now stuck. And that's a really crappy place to be in business if you want to actually move forward.
1: Yeah, look, it's never, and this is an issue, right? Because you don't, a lot of people don't think about these things before they enter that business agreement. They think about, as Trudy said, the happy days, what could happen, the positives. Mm. But what about the negatives? And in a situation like yours, Sarah, where you just explained, you now yeah. have the reality check where, okay, we don't agree on something. What do we do now? Where does it go from here?
0: Absolutely. That's always the issue right and as Trudy said everything's all fine and dandy when it's all working out but when mm. it's not that's where we we get stuck so the different types of contracts that we have in business i mean there's a lot i harp on a lot about subcontractor agreements obviously employment contract are the the probably the common ones um we've briefly touched on constitution already which is forms part of the legal documentation of your entity um, and people think constitutions don't get used But they do, and we've seen that, Trudy. We talked about that when we were talking about financial reports in one of our previous episodes this season. That depends on what your constitution says. It depends as to whether or not you need to produce particular types of reports. So they all have implication. But there's also other types, an IT policy, um, how people use um, equipment that you give them. Um, If you've got a company car, do you have a company car policy, a HR policy? I mean there's lots and lots of different things but a lot of businesses don't actually do this. They don't go and get them in writing. Part of that is because they get up on the fly and they start operating and they just start running um, <laughs> before they've sort of learned yes, to fly. We'll they, they're that. running along. And then it's too little too little, too late. They think, oh, it's been fine so far, so we don't need to worry about Mm it. Other times is they literally just haven't even considered it. And then something happens, which triggers them to go off and get stuff sorted. But I suppose some of the ones I want to concentrate on today um, are around terms and conditions and around subcontractor agreements and around employment contracts and getting those right. And I have seen of late some commentary around HR agreements and, and employee agreements that weren't based in law and by using HR consultants, and not all of them are like this, but do your due diligence on any of the advisors that you pick. We say this all the time um, because once it comes to employee law, as Samir, you can talk to, like you'll find often what's written in an employee contract may not meet fair work requirements and therefore the contract doesn't protect the employer
1: yeah look there is a there's a lot of that because a lot of people just use pro forma documents that they find or someone that has another contract may give it to them and in fact that's a lot of business documents by the way even sales contracts they may just piece it together from google and hand and use that instead but there are certain and this is why it's actually not a bad idea and not a bad idea it's actually smart and pertinent to get legal advice prior to using that contract. And to be real, sometimes even lawyers don't get it 100% right because not everything is tested in an employment contract. Yeah. And then again, a lot of the issues, fair work should be there for issues that aren't necessarily part of the contract or issues that are unforeseen, for mm-hmm. example. for I have one case in particular where, which is in fair work at the moment, where my client asked for a, what is it? a pay rise and basically he was told that he should forego his cpi pay rise and should ask for nothing because in six months later he was going to get a company car but he said that doesn't really suit me i'd rather not get the company car i'd rather look at getting a pay rise at the moment built into his contract was a provision that says we can talk about pay rises at a 12 month interval so he was well within his rights the he was told i can't give you a pay rise we don't have enough money which is fair enough i can understand that there's nothing stop. there's Stopping him from saying no, but he was then terminated. So, which is very interesting. Mm. So, that's going to be a good case, one that we're running. We've actually, yeah, but basically, semi of the way through that at the moment. And the argument from the other side is that it was a handshake agreement and he decided to walk away, which is bollocks in my opinion, but we'll get there soon. But that kind of stuff, right, that's the kind of stuff that you can't necessarily contract anyway because that's just in a disagreement there and obviously someone's lost their mind or decided to go down and maybe make an emotional decision and terminate someone. But it
0: also highlights why a contract should have dispute resolution
1: written into it as to how to resolve the issue. Interestingly, this one did though. It's just that Mm. particular employer had a very emotional moment, I think, (laughs) <laughs> and look, this is where you have that employer-employee connection as well. And this yep. goes back to the other stuff we're talking about. In certain cases, you can have that chat, you can have a disagreement, come back and still be, well, maybe not mates, but still be amicable. And you know there's a reason for disagreement. Other cases, that doesn't happen. And in this case, the emotions took over and that led to a termination when there is a dispute resolution clause. And really what that should have led to is a conference or a discussion between the two, or even have someone third party an external person mediate and say, this is where we're at, let's talk about this. But an emotional decision was made, I think hastily, and that person was terminated. But generally speaking, what you do wanna put in an employment contract is the hours that person is working, what's expected of them. What you said is really important when it comes to equipment you're giving them. So if you're giving them a laptop from work, that laptop is for work and should be used for work purposes. So I have that built into mine, and a lot of employers have that built into theirs, that this laptop or the email is to be used for work purposes and not for personal gain, for example. Look, yeah. 90% of the time, or maybe not 90 but 80% of the time, we know people use it for personal reasons as well. If they're not using it for the wrong reasons, they're making purchases. I don't care if they're buying off ASOS, yeah. or whatever, it doesn't bother me. But if they're, they're not bringing your to, company into disrepute by using it for personal purposes, right? Bingo. But if they then are gaining yeah. an advantage or financial advantage by using my, my the company's I shouldn't say my but the company's email, yeah. that changes. Do you mean if they
0: had like an OnlyFans account that they were then making money on?
1: <laughs> See, the dilemma there is as a law firm with one of your employees having an OnlyFans account could go either way. I think I might have to make yeah. a decision based on how good or bad it goes <laughs> for the company at that point, <laughs> rather than. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> theoretically speaking, it's definitely problematic, but you can imagine if yeah. someone says, hey, at my firm's account, Bunga Legal, has been associated with an OnlyFans. That could, yep. It's probably not going to be taken I mean, the road. All
0: the things, these things are relevant though, right? Like I, I think <laughs> it's prudent to highlight that if you are somebody that does get access to equipment through your employer, if you're going to do something that generates income for yourself, utilise your own equipment to do so because it creates that divide and that line which protects you from any potential um positioning or pushback from an employer and it also protects your employer and ultimately if you like your job and you want to keep your job then it's in your best interest to also look after their best interests
1: it's also private then if it's on your computer because the that's work right. computers yes. are a lot of places especially with the work from home environment will have software which is in their contracts again mm, that they can yep. check your work computer or they can monitor yep. what you're doing so for example in that only fan situation that's monitored it's not going to look very good and other situations, and if you're making, the other thing is sometimes you shouldn't, there's a non-compete which could come into play as well if you're running a separate business and it has anything to do with that. So using a private computer for that would actually be smarter, but that comes down to obviously is it a private computer, is it their computer, And those factors. Which
0: I was actually going to raise. Like we have talked about this a couple of other times in the past in other episodes about um, what you put in your contract as an employer and how that impacts your employee. But it also goes to, as an employee, you don't have to sign what is put in front of you. Go and get legal advice before you sign an employee an employment contract. I had a friend that was given this employment contract that was terrible. And I was like, in no shape in hell would you ever sign that contract because it actually took rights to any IP that he created prior to his employment
1: that's that they owned. Yeah, That's a It was yeah. a shocking, shocking contract. But <laughs>
0: he he wouldn't have known that because, I mean, like, you know, it's the standard thing. You never told me. Did you read your contract? It is in the well, terms. Well, that brings us to another important um, point,
2: isn't it? Always so- read the contract before you sign
0: it. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah like and think I'm gonna say
1: <laughs> 60 to 70 percent of people don't read it and that includes yeah. people that are going in as lawyers it's really funny because when I read my first contract and actually went back to my boss at the time and said hey why can you why do you have a one week notice period for me but I have six weeks for me that doesn't work for me and look they changed it straight away to be clear yeah. but most people didn't read it and signed it so everyone no, has it ever huge, picked it up. Yeah.
0: I had it with a client literally last Friday he rang me and his I had a second he had like an overdraft facility with a lender at FinTech and it's standard terms in their contract that if you go and take an additional facility with a similar organization, like a Prosper or a Moolah or, you know, any of those easy cash facilities that you void your contract with them and they can put call your funds in at any time. And that's what they did. And he was like, why didn't anyone tell me? And the first thing I said to him was, did you read the contract that was sent to you? And he went, well, oh, oh, I just signed it. And I was like, well, you would know that. I mean, sure, we can make it more obvious potentially and we can point it out more obviously. Mm. I did actually point that out to you 12 months ago when you set up the facility. But, you know, there are unintended consequences of not reading things. Um, exactly. and unintended consequences in contracts too that potentially mm. you should point out and get them fixed like you did Samuel
1: <laughs> but the unseen these unintended consequences can be devastating in, pe- yeah. in those number of people yeah. for example take you the one that I just gave you right with the one week six week imagine you get a better job that mm-hmm. you have a you need to get there in two or three weeks and you then find out shit I've got six they've so got one or on the flip side they don't like you anymore and they find oh, a ooh. reason to terminate you or They've only got one week to do it, whereas you have six. It doesn't actually make sense. Generally, not I actually sure. say people should look for an equal split. And I think if it's. Absolute. That's Absolutely. exactly. Exactly. And most employers aren't going to be fair. They're not because mm. they know that, well, at least at one stage, they had power. It's slightly changing in the current market, but that still depends on what field you're in, to be honest. But that's actually a really good point. So that's where the hours are determined. There's a bunch of other things. Now, going to what you said before, Sarah, about. IT policies and stuff like that. Certain companies will have different policies and keep yeah. it out of the contract. Some companies or some organizations will have all that in their employment contract specifically. Yeah. So yeah. That's a choice the business makes. And it could be very different for me than it is for you, Trudy, or you, Sarah. But for yeah. someone who, for example, is a builder or in construction you may not need certain policies in the contract as much as you may need other policies as well. So, even what you require may be slightly different.
0: Yeah, well, for base employment, you might require, you know, oh certificates and stuff like that to even be able to go on site. So, there are other things that change. That's why you have to read them. That's the whole point, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. I suppose if we can flip it now from employee, employer to business to consumer, and that consumer may be another business, so it might be business to business, but – in that instance, we're really looking at terms of trade. Are they a legal contract? How does that work?
1: Look, terms of trade, yes and no. I mean, if you, you could steal a contract effectively, right? But it's like... Uh, how do I describe this? It's an important document to have. I It is still a contract, yes, because if both sides sign into yeah. it, it's a contract effectively. It's like yeah. terms and conditions, terms of trade. Yeah. I mean, you could use them interchangeably too. They're, they're not yeah. too indifferent. Yeah. But if you don't have terms and conditions, it defaults back to what common law states and what the cases state. If you have it, it depends on your particular product or service you're providing too. Yes, I would say if the other person's made aware of it and they contract into it, yes, it is a contract because that's part. That's the okay. conditions. That go along with the contract. Mm-hmm. If they don't know about it and they're not yep. told about it, that's a little bit different at that point. Because then you'd argue it no longer is. But yes, so if you you'd do it properly, effectively,
0: need a signature to prove that. Then that don't need necessarily need us.
1: No? that's okay. the strongest way of doing it, and yeah. that's why when okay. you see Apple and all that, you have to scroll down the bottom, go yeah, through, and it and yeah. press that you understand Tick and box. accept that's correct. However, it can be uh, inferred so by have way of conduct. On their website. 100% and that's weaker automatically. Now in mm-hmm. certain cases if you've done business with this particular organisation number of times, it's very hard to then argue, but if you're a first time if you're a first time associate of this company or organisation, it's a little bit different because you didn't know where you referred to it. But then again if this person gave you a document that referred you to that and you ignored it, that's also a little bit different. But when it comes to terms and conditions or terms of trade being strongest, Yes, you would ask them to sign it or acknowledge it at the bare minimum because that then says Mm. they've had the chance to go through it. If they ignored it, that's on Mm. them.
0: So my my terms of trade when I do business consultancy, I send them a proposal and I say that – by you acknowledging in writing via email that you accept these terms, it's it, it's assumed that you are, it's not even assumed, it says that you have accepted the terms and conditions of this proposal by replying in email that you accept. Like you don't need to sign it to actually accept. Oops. If you write back and say, yes, I'd like to proceed and I send you an invoice, you've actually honoured and accepted my terms of trade.
2: But, that, but that's a, I mean, I, I could guess, get them to sign gone it. gone out of their way then to say, yes, proceed, and yes, we accept the proposal that you've, you've provided. You've given them an opportunity to...
0: Now, to if I didn't that. send them a proposal and I just said it would be this much and they write back, yes, I'd like to proceed, then I don't have terms and conditions because I haven't provided them with the proposal that has the terms and conditions in it. So they yeah. haven't had disclosure.
1: Correct, and if you sent that later, you can't rely on it because they didn't know about it when they signed. So you're spot on correct, and that's why it should be done prior to. The original, the old case law from the 1900s basically comes from receipts where people put it on the receipt as opposed to prior to entering that oh, wow. transaction. It, it used to happen, yeah. and don't get me wrong, I'm sure for a period of time that was acknowledged as fair, but the yeah. cases has eventually changed. And if you give someone the terms and conditions on the receipt, that's no longer applicable because that person's already entered into it not knowing. Yeah, it's too late, right? Correct. Mm. Look at car parks. Car parks are a classic example. Once you've already parked, you're going Mm. to leave, then you get slammed with the terms of conditions. But that's why they're meant to be there prior to you entering. You see it at the boom gate now. You go in and you've got the chance to exit without paying if you don't agree. Yeah,
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Samir, if you were a new business or a startup or whatever you want to call it, a sole trader, um, you've been running for a couple of months, what would be the main contracts that you would actually look to put in place in your business?
1: So, if you've got employees or contractors, you'd have the contractor agreement or the employee agreements. I mean, the constitution Mm -hmm. and stuff you probably don't have to go into because that's inherent, you would think. But uh, you'd need the contract for the company unless you're a sole trader or in a partnership and you'd have those documents instead. But in talk, for your business, you'd have those two. Depending on what type of business you are, if you're if you have anything it's like a website or whatever, a privacy policy is a good idea. Even yes. if you're a construction a business, you still should have some sort of a. I guess not. A, it doesn't have to be very detailed, but some sort of a privacy policy, irrespective.
0: But if you've got to contact us, put your email in here. You're technically correct, collecting their data. If you don't have a privacy policy, you're in breach of the privacy policy legislation, like you know, privacy legislation.
1: Yeah, and that's why it doesn't have to be extremely detailed because it's only small and really it doesn't have to be and you can delete it at the other end anyway and stuff like that, right? So, Mm. it's not hard to abide by, but yes, you should have something. And these days, I think a lot of even the template website makers come with that privacy policy now because it's just – it's very simple and it does the job.
0: And also like the euro regulations on the GDPR have made it as a requirement that you can be found or actioned against and fined if you're selling into the UK, for example, um, and although they're out of the EU now, so I wonder if it would still apply to the UK, the UK. But say you were in France and I was, I was, I was giving business. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, if I was selling into France now um, and I didn't have that legislation disclosure put up there in accordance with the way they've written the legislation there then I can actually like it's like a global um legislation or like implication to abide by the legislation in the same way like their vats and stuff are as well so it's really important it's not as strong in Australia you still need the privacy legislation um, and disclosure but it's not the same implication for your business as if you're selling into an international marketplace.
1: That's a very good point. And that's where you have to be careful of where you're doing business because that makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah. And if you remember for a while, imported products didn't really necessarily have GST, not imported, but if you bought it off eBay and bought yeah. products yeah, overseas, yeah, yeah. it didn't. Yeah. And look how much Customs. that's changed as well. So you need to know what you're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely.
2: Samira, Trudy, do you
0: have a, a question for Samir?
2: If, if a business is not sure whether they've got the right documents, in place, like can they go to a lawyer and say, This is my business? What sorts of things should I have in place and, and get a review done?
1: Yes, yes, they can. And look, it's not going to, people shouldn't freak out by the cost of that either. It shouldn't really cost you that much to no. say, Hey, this is what I've got in place. What do I need? And to be yeah. honest, there's probably other services that are non legal as well with assist with that. So you may not need to have yeah. to go to a lawyer straight away to get that type of information. What are people and-
0: looking at in terms of price though? Because what might be not a lot for you or me, maybe a lot for a small business. You know, everyone has different perspectives on what they think is a lot of money. Like I would think you'd be paying fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars for that sort of stuff, and that would be about market viable and fair mm-hmm. to the solicitor and also fair to your business. But some people would think that that was insane.
1: So let's get to on that note. Partly comes down to how personalized or how detailed it needs to be to the business. Yeah. If you don't require too much editing and it's more generalized, it's going to be cheaper and that's going to be in the realm of 1500 to two grand. But if your yeah. business is very specialized, that changes everything. For example, the la- one of the businesses we assisted over the last couple of years was trying to set up homeschooling. Now, for them, uh, yeah. you can't just get a standard policy and go with it. You Mm-mm. need to rewrite it. Yeah. You need to draft it very much mm-hmm. specially for them, and we had to look into the Department of Education legislation as well, and there's a lot of rules and to And
0: state-based legislation, right, because 100%. it would change depending on the state that they
1: 100%. were in. 100%. So the word I'd use there is bespoke. If you need something bespoke, you're not going to pay standard mm. rates, and this is why conveyances can be cheaper in a certain extent, or that's why you have places yeah. that when you're buying a house if it's a standard contract they don't charge you as much they might do charge you a grand plus disbursements 1300 1400 and you're done yeah but if you're buying a building complex you can't use it's going to cost the same price so look to be fair i do understand that i know lawyers mm-hmm. can be expensive or can be seen to be expensive but i can also tell you when things screw up later we get even more expensive yeah. because then we're dealing with what's already happened plus what needs to be done in the future. And one of the clients that Sarah was talking about earlier, that's the exact issue. Now, hopefully yeah. some of these clients can get some money back in terms of cost when they win their litigation proceedings, if it, if it goes there, but a lot of the time you can't. And that is something that needs to be figured out too. There are barristers who are much more cruel than I am and will just say, hey, for example, in employment laws, a particular barrister said to me, look, they want they're fighting for their job that's why they're employing us in the first place to fight for them and to try and keep their job they got to pay for that we can't do that for free because we're doing them a service as long as they do it and that's one end of the spectrum but the other end is they need to be able to afford it as well so i stand somewhere in the middle and that's why you can look for a firm that is more reasonably priced there are firms that will charge you a lot more if you go to some of the bigger firms i won't name names they're going to charge you a lot more because of what their name is. I'm not saying they don't do a good job necessarily, but they're automatically going to be charging you more. Some of the rates at the bigger firms are eight dollars to $900 an hour for partners. Now, if you go to a country yeah. firm that may be a lot cheaper, you might be paying four hundred. dollars an where I hour. Live. <laughs> well, and that, that's a good point as well. It depends where, right? There are certain country yeah. firms that charge a lot now because there's no one else available. Yeah. But there's certain country firms where there's a lot of lawyers available, Orange, for example, which probably wouldn't charge the same, right? Because there's a bunch of lawyers there. Mm -hmm. But then if they're not specialised in that area and they're going to take more time, is that going to cost you more money as well? And this is the stuff people don't think about when it comes to paying. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, unless it's a fixed rate, but even in a fixed rate, there are variables. If someone's calling me a hundred times a day or a week, yeah. and sending me a thousand emails, yeah. I can't charge the same as someone who sends me one email. I speak to them once, consult with them once, get the stuff done, and they're okay with it, or maybe a couple of amendments. So yeah. this is the stuff that's relative to that particular transaction or contract as well. But I think we all but understand that. That, that applies all to, to own creatives
0: too. Yeah. Yeah, creative industry will tell you that. Get a logo designed. The person yeah, that wants to like change it a thousand times versus the person yep. that wants to, is happy with the second mm. or third change um, is very different to, yeah. like, And I, I think you get what you pay for as well. And as you mentioned right at the start, like being proactive is so important in this. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen where people have had the right contracts in place up front mm. when something has gone wrong because it inevitably does um, I think you're naive to think that it will never happen to you, especially in business. Mm. Um, it's been a lot cheaper for them to defend their position once they've got contracts in place than if they had never had contracts or the right type of contracts for their business mm. to start with.
2: Yep, And in terms of terms of trade and things you've like got that, you'll probably stand find stand debt collectors on. love them as well. In terms of being able to chase the payments, if you actually got some sort of terms and agreements in place, it makes it a lot easier to sort of enforce the payments. Uh, for the work that's been done
0: as well. I suppose it goes back to that contract law piece Mm. though, right, which governs all of this. And correct me if I'm wrong, if there's no contract in place, as you said earlier, Samir, it then falls to common law and it's what you can prove, right?
1: and it defaults back to what the what the common law suggests is fair equitable and then yeah. you'll you'll get arguments from both sides saying orally this was said this was said and that's where it becomes very very sticky and especially yeah. if you don't have these and you're fighting over a small sum of money and again that's relative to the business but that sum of money small being based on what your business structure is and what your gross and net profit may be, yeah. for example. That could then not be worth fighting anymore. You may have to lose a lot of money to be able to get it back, if ever. It becomes very difficult for some people, and that's why you have the cost-benefit analysis there. So, you're better off just being proactive and getting yeah. that sorted.
0: Now, quick question, because we touched on it, subcontractor agreements – When do you need them and what do they need to have in them? Because, I mean, I talk to my clients about this all the time and, especially in the construction industry, like it's not common to have subcontractor agreements, so they don't really want to go push them onto their subbies, Um, but might have concerns about all sorts of implications, including, as Trudy could talk to, tax or, you know, Mm -hmm. other super contribution obligations. But where does the liability cease? Like you hear all the time, or we – got this job, we won this job, we subbed out the con- construction of the concrete, for example, and now the concrete's failed and the client wants us to replace it, but the subby that's done the work is saying it's not his fault or her fault. Like, who's liable then in that situation? I mean, if you're outsourcing, you need to have contracts that protect you.
1: That's you a good and point, because contract. when you're actually... <laughs> When you're actually, if you're sub, if you're subbing it out, right? If you're subbed it out to someone else, you're actually responsible to the original. I guess you could say the principal, and then that sub yeah. is responsible to you. So it then becomes a three way suit. They'll sue you, you sue them, and it goes around there. In terms of having these contracts or subcontractor agreements, very few people actually do. Very few companies do. Mm-hmm. Most of them are handshake agreements. And I'm yeah. sure they work even a majority of the time. I just don't know if it's a big majority, a small majority. Is it 51, 49? I don't know. But they do go wrong all the time as well. And mm-hmm. this is where having it in writing would be good. But I think sometimes it's just easier for the organizations, as you said, basically you pointed out to to not have them because you can't just get it done quickly. It's the standard course of business at the moment. It's not to have them. But in terms of what could be required in them, there's not there's for requirements per se. It's more what you what the business does and what you want in them. For example, time frame mm. would be a very important thing. You've got yeah. deadlines. You want the deadlines in there because then you can hold them liable to that. Extensions of time, which is similar to a building contract that you would have with your principal, you want that in there. You definitely yeah. want a clause for disagreements and you, you need that. I think that's actually one of the biggest ones that should be in most contracts. But especially a subcontractor agreement, what happens if you disagree on something? Say, for example, the price of a particular material. Sorry, you, you just bought.
0: dropped out there, Samir, What did you say? What was the last piece?
1: Subcontract agreements. So, what happens if you disagree on something? So, basically, a dispute resolution clause. That is one of the most important clauses that would be in there. Yeah. And that's all contracts, basically, or if not most, a very high majority of them. But in a sub agreement, you'd want that for sure. Because that is what's going to keep you going when there is a dispute and you want clauses around, for example, what can happen in times of a dispute, whether the job can stop, what's requirements for the job stopping, stuff like that too. So, there's some of the things you touch on in there. But deadline's important. That is important. Rising cost of material, especially in the last three years because that's been huge in the construction industry. The cost of material has risen and it's yeah. still rising. So a lot of your clients, Sarah, are probably seeing the same thing. I get it all the time now where concrete and steel yeah. has gone through the roof. And it, it's probably – the problem with that becomes if you're not so used to it or you're not – sorry? So has timber. No, there you go. So it's timber. So then you're losing your yeah. profit margins. And if you've got a small profit margin, you actually may not be making anything at that point. You definitely do want to be yes. losing. Yes. <laughs>
0: Yes. It's a common issue. If you haven't done a break-even analysis, you're not keeping an eye on that. It <laughs> can be a big problem. But the uh, the, the other issue is, is that if you're not um, contractually allowed to pass the additional cost onto your customer, you have to wear it. And it's just bad business effectively, right? You yeah. haven't done the sums, so it's on you and you haven't protected your business. So, um. Look, I'm sure we could talk about this until the cows come home. I mean, we haven't even touched on really, like you just mentioned, like progress payments in construction, like depending on the um, jurisdiction that you're in, New South Wales versus Victoria and your licensing, what you can and can't do in terms of being able to charge 10% deposit um, and things of the like. And how do you get around that? You have to contract the customer and you need to charge progress payments. Like there's there's nothing. Samir and I have done a bit of research on this for our customers that are now getting stuck because the law and legislation um, the in New South Wales, sorry, says that they can only charge 10% deposit. So, if you've got a 50% or 60% materials bill that you have to order before the job starts to get the job, but the customer only pays 10% and then pulls out, you can't return the materials. So, the only way to do that is to start charging progress claims um, throughout the course. So, Ultimately, as a business, there's a lot of things that you need to do to protect yourself rather than just do the work. And I suppose what we're getting at is get some of this stuff sorted and put some systems and processes in around this so that it becomes autopilot for you. Um, And there's some great software programs that you can use to do this. Samir, your office does do this type of work though, doesn't it? People can contact you for employment agreements, for um, terms of trade, trade contracting stuff, all of that sort of stuff, yeah? Subbie agreements?
1: Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think going back yeah. to what we mentioned earlier, especially if it's a bespoke stuff, we enjoy that stuff. But then just be ready for the cost of it. Just please keep that in mind. Obviously, we do it all. Yeah. But as Sarah, you said I think we had a good discussion on the average cost and what you can expect.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Trudy, do you have anything that you'd like to add on this sort of stuff? Just that if you don't
2: know where your agreements are, you have some in place but you don't know where they're saved or where they're kept, then put it on that to-do list to make sure that you are save them and them together on the computer drive or saving them together in your filing cabinet because if you do need them, you still need to be able to access them at some point in time. There's no point having them if they're filed away somewhere where no one knows where they exist. And if you don't have them, then it needs to be on your to-do list to review what you should have in place and, and to get that action as soon as possible. Yeah.
1: People Absolutely. should keep a soft copy at all times um, of these things, uh, like yes, not yep. just hard copy. Yep. Keep a soft yep. copy, scan it in, put it somewhere. It's just like a will. You need to have a traceable contract somewhere and you should have a storage system for that. So yep. that's a good point. Yep.
0: Um, Samir, so what's the best way to contact you? Is it to ring through to the office or email? What's the best Look, way to contact?
1: Both, but if you email for some people, so that'd be info I N F O at B A N for November G A legal com AU. Otherwise, look you can ring, but it's yep. uh, there's a Sydney number and a Melbourne number. So email sometimes is just the best, it just goes directly through to where it needs to go. Yeah, it's
0: the easiest way to get through, fastest way to get through, yes. yeah. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Well, I think that's plenty to unpack from today for those people that were listening. Um, We've really appreciated you coming on board. It's always great to have you and your position and the way you speak and explain things um, on board, Samir. So thanks very much for that.
1: Yeah, Yeah, thanks for joining
0: us. Thanks for having me, Sarah and Trudy. We'll speak to you next time. You've been listening to Financial Fofu. Cheers, everyone. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Financial Fofu. We really appreciate you tuning in and hope that you have subscribed to our channel. I just wanted to let you all know that the information and material in our podcast and any supplementary and associated information available is for general purposes only. It should not be taken as constituting professional advice from us, the podcast owners, and our special guests, and we recommend that you seek independent, suitable advice that is specific for your unique circumstances. Thanks for tuning in in hope to see you next week please 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 send us um, use our link and send us any requests or any feedback we'd really appreciate it cheers